Tomasso. As we continue in the practice this morning, just a little bit of a point of clarification or more like a reminder. And it's also kind of an anomaly that I'm going to share with you. And, but I'll give an analogy first. And that is when you've well learned how to ride a bicycle, probably all of us have, and you're just pedaling along a street very normally, then as your feet are going up and down, just pushing the pedals, you're not, you don't have to continually remember, now push down the right foot, now push down the left foot, okay, right foot, remember, right foot, left foot. We don't have to do that. We all know that you did have to learn that at one point. You did have to remember that at one point. But then, now I'm telling you about your own experience that we all know, you don't need to remember anything at that point. You're just in a flow of it. And without any conscious engagement with that, uh, there's just a flow there that takes, takes care of itself by itself, right? Isn't that what it's like to ride a bike? And so in a similar fashion here, wherever you are in the, the stage of the practice, whether you're still in the oscillation mode of the release into space and the arousal, or whether you've moved beyond that just into kind of an evenness of a simultaneous awareness of awareness and the release of your mind, release of your awareness for that matter, into space, if you've just kind of come to that equilibrium, that equipoise, and you're just resting there, either way, the oscillation can become so effortless, so much in the flow, that you don't really need to remember anything any more than you need to remember pushing down the right and the left foot. It's it just, it, that's what's happening, right? And so what I'm getting at here is when you really get into the flow of this practice, especially when you come to its culmination, uh, that is in terms of the method itself of just releasing your awareness in empty external space, as the concise explanations described, that you really do your very best to release all recollection. All recollection. So here I'm telling you something that later in the practice, release all recollection. Right? So this is where the anomaly comes in. But hopefully this is not completely absurd. Uh, but when you're in the practice, you really... And it's, it's not that much of an anomaly. When you're in the flow, you don't need to remember. Until you're in the flow, you do need to remember. That's why I'm saying now, remember this, until you no longer need to remember because you're in the flow. So what I'm saying is not gibberish. It sounds maybe on the surface a little bit irrational. Remember to not remember what I'm saying now. Um, but in actual practice, it's very sensible, right? It's quite clear, isn't it? So there you go. So two elements. And that is when, when you're just in the flow of the practice, whether still in the oscillation mode or whether you're just in the steady state mode, release all recollection, all remembering of the past. Remember? All recollection, all, in other words, mindfulness, because that's the, the formal and essential meaning of mindfulness, is recalling in all the languages of Asia, as I've mentioned before. So there's one point, really, to be resting in an absence of mindfulness in the sense of recollection. On the one hand, there's one. There's, I'm making two points here. There's one of them. And the second point, there's a, there's a technical term called manasikara in Sanskrit, translated manasikara, manasikara. It's mental engagement. So the English is perfectly good. And we know what that's like. It's really the engaging of your attention with an object or with a sign, right? So it could be color, the color of Annette's hair. I'm attending to it. I'm mentally engaging with it. I know it. I've got a good reference. Bang, I hit the sign, right? So we all know about that. As you get into the flow of the practice, see if you can be free of any type of mental engagement. That is, no bang, no striking of your attention to an object, engaging with it, right? Which we're very familiar with. 
See if you can release that. So you're not going bang and striking space. Oh, now I'm observing space. Not that. Or, oh, now I'm observing awareness. In a kind of a grasping mode, a cognitive mode, a mentally engaged mode. Okay, I've got it. Yep, there's my awareness. Gotcha. I've got you. I've got you. None of that. Just simpler. Keep it real simple. You're just being aware of being aware. Now here's where the subtlety is. We're releasing mindfulness and releasing mental engagement, which is really how we're operating pretty much all the time in our ordinary waking state as we're making sense of the world and getting by. That's just, those are our right and left hand. Kind of remembering the past and we're engaging with the present, anticipating the future based upon the past. That's how we know anything within our familiar cognitive frameworks, our conceptual frameworks. But if some of you are already beginning to taste in this practice of shamatha, especially shamatha without a sign, and now merging mind with space. Actually, for all shamatha methods, but very, especially for, very explicitly for those as a method, we're seeking to slip into a way of knowing that is still ascertaining, cognizant, present, alert, but without the familiar mindfulness, as in recollection, and without the familiar mental engagement where we're engaging with a sign. In other words, I'm going to emphasize again, in this method, the method is the most similar method, that is, the method that is most similar to the fruition. We're really, like this, this morning, wherever you are on the nine stages, if it's one and a half or two or one half of one, wherever you may be, uh, that we're seeing, doing our very best to emulate the state of consciousness and the way of knowing that you'll experience when you've achieved shamatha. Clear, luminous, still, brilliantly cognizant, not talking and not engaging with any sign. So, clear? Remember now not to remember what I said. <laughs> Please find a comfortable position. As much as you can each time you venture into a session, do so with a sense of, of gratitude, of gladness, of appreciation, that you have this opportunity, this leisure and this opportunity to explore the very nature of the mind, and not only your coarse mind, which is certainly worthwhile, but even that from which your coarse mind emerges into which it dissolves every time you fall deep asleep. We have here in the palm of our hands the opportunity to fathom the very nature of consciousness itself all the way down to the ground. So savoring the opportunity and in the spirit of loving kindness for yourself, settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural states and gently soothe the mind 
for a little while with mindfulness of breathing. Then with that sense of utter release, of totally letting go during each out-breath, now shift your awareness of the breath to a peripheral status, just marginally being aware when the breath is going in and out. And as the breath flows out, now release your mind into space and open expanse with no object, empty of thought, 
And as the breath flows in, heighten, accentuate a type of knowing that was already there. And that, of course, is the knowing of knowing, the awareness of being aware. Release and accentuate. accentuate. And for as long as you find it helpful, at the beginning of each in-breath, you may recite sal, meaning luminosity, the beginning of each outbreath, tong, which means empty.
reciting those two syllables is no longer useful to restore the flow of mindfulness, but rather clutters it, then let your awareness flow in a non-conceptual mode without interruption, simply releasing deeply into this open expanse and arousing into the sheer luminosity of awareness. Luminosity, again, is not some light, some brightness, some color, but just the vivid sense of being awake, alert, vigilant, radiantly clear in your awareness. And yet, as you breathe out, utterly at ease, loose and relaxed,
when there comes a point, when you release into that open expanse of the space of the mind, you're clearly and vividly aware of awareness itself. And as you arouse that awareness, you are still merged with the space of awareness. Then there's no longer any need to oscillate, but remain in that equipoise that is simultaneously aware of the, the emptiness and the luminosity.
on all nasa. So, return to a few notes I put together here. So the last comment, I'll just, for, for continuity's sake, I'll just read again the statement by Gyatri Maji in his commentary to this text, Naked Awareness, which is a classic by Kamachame by Rinpoche on the union of Mahamudra and Dzogchen. So he's one of the very few people who could write such a text because he was kind of a lineage holder, a very accomplished adept, both of Mahamudra and Dzogchen. And he comments at one point that the practice of Mahamudra is essentially identical to the first of the two phases of Dzogchen, namely the tekchu, or breaking through, the breakthrough, to pristine awareness. It's all about the same thing. And so the method is essentially the same, terminology a little bit different, but he said they boil down to the same thing. Tutgel, you don't find in the, uh, the Mahamudra tradition, that's unique to Dzogchen. And the Tutgel being, again, the direct crossing over. So Gyatranabhachi comments here that the stage of the yoga of single-pointedness, you recall that's the first of the four yogas of Mahamudra, he says the first stage of single-pointedness occurs with the accomplishment of shamatha, wherein one single-pointedly attends to one's own awareness, which is primordially unceasing and luminous. Then we go to one of the kamapas, especially renowned, the third kamapa, Ranjun Dorje, in his Tichen, or the Great Instructions. He associates the small stage, remember the small, medium, and great stage of this first yoga. He associates the small stage of the yoga of single-pointedness with the Mahayana path of accumulation, which is the first of the five paths culminating in perfect enlightenment. So this is true for the whole Indo-Tibetan tradition. You don't find it in Theravada. It's certainly not there in, in Zen. But in going back to the Mahayana sutras, and then especially the great commentaries, for example, the five works of Maitreya, especially the Abhisamaya Alankara, or Ornament of Clear Realization, then these five paths of accumulation, preparation, seeing, meditation, and no more meditation, that's kind of the, the structure of the entire path from, beginning a, from the moment you become a bodhisattva until you achieve enlightenment, the enlightenment of a Buddha. And so in the Monastic University of Tibet, they would study that for four or five years, just that, that text, commentaries. I was in the monastery, we memorized the text. It was of small pages, what was it, 80 pages. Just memorized the whole text before we even began studying it. We just memorized the whole text. And uh, so that's, your, that's the framework of it, you know, your fundamental understanding of Mayana Buddhism in terms of the path to perfect awakening. So this Ranjan Dorje, the third Kamapa, uh, then he's now mapping the, these four yogas. He does so actually quite, in quite some detail. He maps the four yogas onto these five paths. And then he equates the small stage of the first yoga of single-pointedness with the first path of accumulation. Okay? Now, in both cases, to achieve that first path, path of accumulation, according to general Mahayana, you must achieve shamatha. You must achieve shamatha. Uh, in order to achieve the first yoga of Mahamudra, of single-pointed, you must achieve shamatha. Not kind of shamatha, but fully achieve shamatha. So that's a complete map, a very clear mapping onto. Another of the great Kagyupa and Mahamudra masters is Tsele Naso Rangdur. And in his book, The Lamp of Mahamudra, The Lamp of Mahamudra, Tsele Nasorandra writes, One-pointedness, the first yoga of Mahamudra, has three levels, small, medium, and great. One-pointedness, for the most part, consists of shamatha and the gradual progression through the stages of shamatha with support. And you know what that means, with support, means with a sign, with an object, the breath, a Buddha image, 
whatever it may be, an orb of light at the heart, or even for that matter, focusing on thoughts and so forth. So it consists of shamatha and the gradual progression through the stages of shamatha with support, without support, that shamatha with no sign, and then finally to the shamatha that delights the, delights the tathagatas. And that's the full achievement of shamatha. During that process, grasping gradually diminishes. So once again, grasping is not something one can simply decide not to do anymore and then not do it, but it gradually subsides. So when Padmasambhava gives in Natural Liberation a whole sequence, uh, and so do, so do others, uh, the um, Kamachame also gives a sequence of, me of methods, and it always goes from coarse to subtle. So first take a Buddha image or a flower, a stick, a stone, place it in front of you, look at it, and see if you can focus your mental awareness on that without wavering. So it's kind of easy. You don't have to visualize anything. Just see if you can sit down and you're latching your attention onto that flower, let's say, and see if you, or see if you can just sustain your awareness of it. So there's a lot of grasping there, but at least you're not falling into so much rumination and you're not grasping all over the place. And then it goes to a mental image and there's still grasping. Then it may be going just to attending to thoughts and images arising but without the grasping, the identification, the clinging onto, but just being present with them. You go to space of awareness, even less grasping. Go to awareness of awareness, even less grasping, right? And really, when you're practicing, there is, you're, you're releasing grasping as fully as you possibly can. So that's how he describes this sequence. Now, he says the first yoga of single-pointedness is comprised primarily of shamatha, but of course, it does consist of something more, and that is vipassana comes in. It's not just shamatha. But it's that union of shamatha vipassana. That really is the defining characteristic of the first yoga. And if you haven't achieved shamatha, of course, you can't have a union of anything with shamatha. So it's shamatha, but also the beginnings of insight into emptiness. That characterizes, that's defining characteristic of the first yoga. But once again, if you haven't achieved shamatha, you're not even on the first yoga, and you're not even on the first path. So, kind of important then. Now, from naked awareness, from Kamachame himself, again, he said in the 17th century, he says, he writes now, I quote, up until single-pointedness, so up until you achieve that yoga of single-pointedness, primordial consciousness that realizes the path has not arisen. So until that stage, primordial consciousness isn't manifesting yet. That the, the one that realizes the path and is moving, moving right along the path of Mahamudra, it hasn't happened yet. So that is not genuine meditative equipoise. That is, if you haven't achieved single-pointedness, then you're not entering into genuine meditative, meditative, meditative equipoise because it's defined as you must have that single-pointedness, and that's defined as you must have shamatha. So he concludes here, thus, as subsequent appearances do not appear as illusions, that is, without being able to rest in meditative equipoise, that's formal meditation, and he's talking about shamatha here, if you don't have that, then in terms of post-meditative experience, the real significance of phenomena arising as illusions won't happen. So as subsequent appearances do not appear as illusions, there is no genuine post-meditative state. So in terms of the path of Mahamudra, if you haven't achieved shamatha, then you're not resting meditative equipoise. But if you're not resting in meditative equipoise, you're not having an authentic Mahamudra post-meditative experience either. In other words, you're really kind of nowhere. You're not yet on the path of Mahamudra at all. We'll quote another of the Karmapas, the ninth, the ninth Karmapa, classic text, The Ocean of Definitive Meaning, Mahamudra, The Ocean of Definitive Meaning by the ninth Karmapa, Wanchut Dorje. And he writes, and I quote, 
How then should one seek to realize shamatha? It is highly praiseworthy for someone to achieve shamatha at the threshold to the first jhana, within the form realm, as stated before. That's what you really should go for. To achieve shamatha at the threshold of the first jhana. We've heard that many times. It's in the form realm. That's when you first cross the threshold into the form realm. That's what's highly praiseworthy. This is what's praised by all the tathagatas of the three times. Failing that, if you're not up to it, then one would do well to realize a single-pointed concentration in the desire realm. But then that's not shamatha. That's, okay, it's in, the, in the direction. You have more stability, more vividness, but it's, it's not shamatha. But if you can't, don't have the gumption to go all the way, well then, okay, go as far as you can. So, kind of like second best. So there are many, many people in Tibetan Buddhism nowadays, lamas, Western teachers, when teaching shamatha, they say, well, the, sh the pinnacle of shamatha is where your awareness is just really open to all the senses and you're not really distracted by them, but you're aware of them, but they don't disturb you, and the mind is really calm and peaceful, and that's shamatha. Well, that's the second best. I don't even know how this can be debated. It's so obvious. And that is, if you're still aware of the phenomena arising in the desire realm, colors, sounds, tastes, tactile sensations, your mind's in the desire realm. That shouldn't need any argumentation at all. It'd be utterly, transparently clear and obvious. Which means if it's in the desire realm, it's not in the forum realm. You've not crossed the threshold into the forum realm. And this is also cl clear in the Theravada tradition. When you're achieving access or access to the first jhana or threshold of the first jhana, then your mind slips into the vivanga, which is the same state it slips into when you're in deep sleep, deep dreamless sleep. Well, we all know that you're not picking up sensory impressions from the environment at that time. You've gone into just the sheer vacuity. And that's when you slip over into the form realm. So the Theravada tradition says this. Um, the, in, the Indian classics say this. So if one idealizes, says shamatha, the pinnacle, the actual shamatha, is where you're still resting in the, form, in the desire realm and you're still open to and aware of your body, appearances and so forth of the, of the, of the desire realm, that means you just haven't studied very well. Because this is not something, it's not terribly difficult. Just kind of read, read the text and there they are that you're still in the desire realm, which means you haven't achieved shamatha. And here's a crucial point, uh, and this is really clear in the, in the sutras, in the Indian commentaries, but especially by Asanga, and then Tsongkhama makes it extremely clear, but the other ones too, Karmapam also alludes to this, and that is when you are, you, some of you might recall this from the Attention Revolution, and that is when you've gone through all the nine stages. We're really looking ahead here, but again, now is a good time because our practice here is emulating the fruition, right? But when you've gone through the nine stages, right, and by stages seven, eight, nine especially, the senses are really imploding. They begin to implode quite regularly at stage seven, and then more and more stage nine. And then, then when you're really on that day that you achieve shamatha, it's really a memorable day. It's not a kind of like maybe sometime last month. And what happens there is something very distinctive and unprecedented. And that is there's this radical shift, first in the mind, I mean, again, they refer to, and this goes back to a Sangha himself, it starts with something clearly happening in the brain because you experience something like a, a gentle pressure on the top of your head, as if, you had, as if you were bald and had somebody just kind of laying their palm on top of your head. Kind of a pressure there. So something's happening in the brain. And it'd be really great to have somebody achieve shamatha with an EEG cap on so they could find out what's happening in the brain. Because that's all the Buddhists speak of is what's the subjective experience of it. 
But you have this kind of a sense of pressure on the top, but not unpleasant. And then that's just kind of like, it's almost, if I give an analogy of something I haven't experienced for a very long time, when a woman breaks water just prior to giving birth, you know, I don't really know what that's like. You know, last time I had it, you know, I've forgotten the last time I had that. Um, but that's just the indicator. That's, that means, whoa, something's about to happen, right? Well, this is the breaking water. Okay, it's a pressure. They say, oh, somebody... Now, you do have to pass through the nine stages first, so don't get too excited if you had a little pressure today. You're not, you're not breaking water, probably. It's probably a bit of pressure. Um, but then what happens after that is quite remarkable. And it's absolutely crucial. And it's true in the sutras, the Indian commentaries, and then all of the knowledge people, people in the Tibet knew it as well is that you experience something, an unprecedented degree of pliancy, buoyancy, lightness, suppleness, serviceability of your mind. Your mind is like, have you ever seen Olympic gymnasts when they're doing, doing their various exercises and say, wow, how could the human body do that? I mean, it's like, wow, it's amazing. How supple, how strong, like, like whew, amazing. well, that's what your mind is like. You just experience this unprecedented lightness, buoyancy of the mind. And so a radical shift, something unprecedented. And then, that, then that, that sets up a whole kind of a domino effect, a triggering effect. It's top down. It's mind to body. And there's first this pliancy, suppleness arises in the mind. And that catalyzes top down a triggering and a shift of the prana in the body. They're called lelung in Tibetan, or dynamic energies, the dynamic energies in the body. And for the first, to an unprecedented degree, you have little glimpses of this, little spikes of this earlier. But now it's come as like a total rush, like a dam breaking. You might have a little sprout here and a little, little, little leak there and a little leak there of like, oh, something's about to happen. And then the whole dam gives away. Well, it's like that. And that is there's this complete rush, this complete free flow of prana coursing out through the entire body, unprecedented. I mean, it's just an absolute charge charge of energy, absolutely permeating the whole body. And this is a body now, a radical shift of energy. And it really is durable. It remains. And so, and now you have this sense of lightness, buoyancy, suppleness, serviceability of the body. You experience the body at this time very strongly. But this, again, these words, all of them combined into this one word, prashrapta in Sanskrit. Suppleness, lightness, buoyancy. Uh, one yogi that his holiness spoke to said, who had experienced this, he had Shishamata. He said, you feel like you can jump over mountains. And in fact, you can't, but you just feel that kind of lightness. You look at a mountain and feel, I just feel so springy. I could just kind of jump right over it. You know? And so something very powerful happens in the body, and it's this energetic shift. So first taking place in the mind, where all the dysfunctionality, the rigidness, the, the wobbliness, the ADHD of the mind, gone, whooshed away. The mind is extremely supple, and now the rigidity, the tightness, and so forth of the body whooshed away from the energetic level up, and this utter suppleness, lightness, and so forth. And then following that comes a bliss, an unprecedented degree of physical bliss that's saturating the body, just permeating. It's ecstasy. It's you, you can't do anything for a while. It's just like, whoa, go for the ride. You know? And then that triggers a mental bliss, which now has no somatic element to it. There's a sequence to it. And now a mental bliss totally fills your mind. And once again, you can't do much except for, that's nice, just enjoy that bliss. And then, like these kind of volcanoes going off, these eruptions, but nice eruptions, then that tapers off 
like a volcano that's spewed and then finally it starts to fizzle out. It just tapers off like a fireworks display where you see the grand finale at the end and then just gradually they fade back to the night sky and then it's really quiet. It's exactly what happens. This, this finale, this, this great rush of bliss, of ecstasy, arises, fills the mind, and then it settles. But not into depression or anything like that. It, dep- it just settles into just a flow of well-being. Just a sense of well-being. And joy, but joy, a very manageable joy that you could really work with. You could do things while you're experiencing the joy and not be overwhelmed by it. That's when you achieve shamatha. That right there, that point there, when that bliss has subsided, and now you've, the image that just came to mind is turning on one of those $500,000 Maseratis, and you feel the, the rush when it first, the roar of all those pistons going off, and, and that's when you just turn the ignition, and then, and then after doing so, then of course, wow, this baby's ready to go. You know, put it into gear. But the rush is no longer there. It's tapered, tapered off, so now it's in neutral. But it's ready to go forward, backward, any way you like. So now you've achieved shamatha. But it's that, that shift, that suppleness, the pliancy, this radical somatic and physiological shift in the body. If that doesn't happen, you've not achieved shamatha. Not the real shamatha. So you've achieved some single-pointed attention in the desire realm. But that comes and goes. You can get it, be in retreat, have it. You can go out of retreat and lose it. And so if one says, that's really shamatha, and, and then, oh, and then some will even say, oh, it's wrong. If your senses start to implode, oh, that's dangerous, that's wrong, that's wrong. Well, they're just preventing you from actually achieving shamatha. If you're actually that far along the path, that with great lucidity, clarity, vividness, and so forth, your senses start starting to implode. And then some teacher says, oh, no, that's bad. This teacher has been like a, like a demon to your practice. Because he's saying, oh, no, don't achieve shamatha. But if you don't achieve shamatha, if you're a Mahamudra teacher, that means you won't achieve the first yoga which means you're not on any path at all. And so the yoga is actually, the, the teacher, the lama is actually obstructing you from achieving the path. That's not exactly what I would call a service. So for this reason, the Vajra essence, we come back. I'm going to read the rest of this and we'll take our break. The Vajra essence coming back. Dujum Lingba or Padmasambhava, I mean, transmitting there in the 1860s. He knows about all of this because this is not something, this is not just a 20th century phenomenon. This has been going on for centuries. And so back there in the, the mid-19th century, the Vajra Essence, Padmasambhava states, know that among unrefined people in this degenerate era, very few appear to achieve more than fleeting stability. That's in Tibet, 1860s. No genocide, no decimation, nobody to blame. But a lot of people just passing on misinformation. You know? And then not practicing anyway. I mean, if you, look, if you look in any of the Buddhist publications, look, just go online and see what are the meditations being offered, what are the retreats being offered by lamas and Western teachers in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Vajrayana, 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 Poa, Chur, Dumo, Mahamudra, Dzogchen, 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 Lamrim, Lamrim, Lamrim. Hmm. Hardly any Vipassana and hardly any Shamatha. And if they do Shamatha, they'll give you a month and say, now have a nice day. You, you, you didn't want more than a spoonful, did you? And so the question does come up, and quite legitimately. Why are there so few people of achieving shamatha? Because I think there are relatively few people. I mean, this is what Padmasambhava says in the 1860s. Relatively few people in our achieve more than fleeting stability. In other words, they're still hanging out there in the desire realm, which means that radical shift has not taken place. They don't have a new, whole new platform for developing Vipassana and the union of shamatha Vipassana. And so, well, then it's obvious why it's rare. 
Not many people are teaching it authentically. I don't know why. It's not that hard, you know. But uh, not many people are teaching it at all. Among those who are, are teaching it, some of them really promoting jhanas. You should achieve the first, second, third jhana. But then their descriptions, does it correspond? The, the descriptions correspond to the sound bites in the Pali Canon, which are very, very vague. Um, but then if you simply ask them, oh, you think it's a really good idea to achieve first jhana? You've achieved first jhana? Good. Can you sit for 24 hours without, without moving? With flawless samadhi? You can do that? If so, I congratulate them. That's fantastic. Really, then it's authentic. 24 hours straight, that's what Buddha Gosa said. And so if the popularizers of jhanas these days, if they can do that, then my hat's off to them. Congratulations for maintaining the authentic dharma. But if they start saying, if, if they start doing what's so common, is they say, no, 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 no. He didn't mean that literally. No, the first jhana is what I've experienced. And then they start interpreting the sutras, the suttas, the Buddhist discourse and so forth, bring it down to their level rather than bringing their level up to the level of Buddha Gosa. That's, I think, not so honest. It's very good if you want to sell what you're doing because it sounds really good, glamorous, like I got a, a Mercedes, I got a Cadillac. But it's still not even a VW, it's a bicycle. So just teaching that authentically. So coming back to that very serious question, how, how come so few? Very few people teach it. Very few people, among them, very few teach it authentically. Among those who do, very few people guide anybody for more than maybe a weekend or a month at most. So that's why then it's no big, no big mystery. If you don't do it, then you don't get the effect. You don't do the practice. Then, of course, you don't get the fruit. And this was actually true in the, in the uh, 19th century. So there'll be a little bit more tomorrow. Quite interesting stuff. But it's not that difficult to find out what the authentic teachings are. Because one doesn't need to look too far. You just need to know, 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 where, know where to look. So this is all to say, let's build and then drive a really good VW bug. And not call it anything that it's not. Because a VW bug is one darn good vehicle. I know from experience. <laughs> Enjoy your day. And I'll see you at 4.30.